0: Listening to studies in the book of James. If you'd like more resources like this, or you're in the Kansas City area and would like to connect, you can find us at thebridgekc.church. James 2, he opens uh, the book of James in James chapter 1, of course, his basic thing behind it is the idea that uh, it is not right to just hear the word and not do it. That there's got to be some sort of follow-up, there's got to be some sort of expression of what you're understanding that the Lord is telling you. That it's, it's, there's a, it's actually calls it deceptive to get into that gap between what you know to do and what you don't know to do. And that there's, That's not just bad theology, it's not just bad practice, it's actually deceptive to your heart because you begin to convince yourself you're okay. And if you've ever found yourself convinced of something that's okay, that you know the word tells you is not okay, you understand how deceptive that is. It's just a bad spot to be. So that's what James 1 talks about. James 2 talks primarily about two things. It talks about the idea of partiality, of uh, treating people one way or the other. And uh, the, second passage, or the second part talks a little bit more about walking out our faith in a physical way. So we're hoping to talk about that, that first part this morning, depending on how my notes look. Uh, if you have your if you have you version, you can look exactly at what I'm looking at, which is uh, James 2. And I'm just going to read verses 1 through 13. It's a longer passage than we normally read, but uh, we're going to do that. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the, fi- hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. You're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's just pray over this for a minute. Father, we thank you that you speak through your written word. And we ask that you would just unfold this to us this morning. That everything that you wanted to be said this morning would be said. And everything that you wanted to be received would be received. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the deal with James is he's a little bit like the book of Proverbs in that uh, it seems like he moves from one thing to another really quickly. He goes from one topic to another, goes back to the first topic, a lot because it was probably dictated. He, was, he spoke it, and we speak differently than we, we write. Somebody transcribed it for him. But in light of that, sometimes it seems like he is resisting a three-point outline. Like if you sit down to outline James, you're like, mm, maybe if I turn it around, no. and there's just, it's hard to outline it. And so when you get to a passage like this, let me give you a, a good idea about how to, um, how to work with a passage that doesn't outline itself very well. How many of you, uh, just raise your hand, would feel comfortable tackling a passage and leading a Bible study with a group of 20 people at 2 o'clock today, if I told you the passage right now? How many of you? All right, we're in deep trouble. Okay, but, because here's the deal. There is such a deficit of the understanding of the word that a church can't get by with one guy who can teach. It's just, it's not right. And so this is a great way for you to tackle a passage. And if you do it this way, I think most of you actually could sit with a group of people and lead them through this. There are three questions that you can look at a passage and ask these three questions and you can probably pull something out of it and and understand it. Write these things down. These you'll use later. First question is, what does this passage say about us? As we look at this chunk of scripture, what does it say about us? What did Socrates say that the, uh, the unexamined life is, is not worth living? I would say the life unexamined in the light of scripture is not worth living. And so it's really important to read scripture and say, what does this say about who I am? Is it talking about God's goodness? Is it talk about problems I have? What are the lessons for my life out of this passage of scripture? How does it describe me? 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless if indeed you fail to meet the test. In other words, examine, look inward, and see what this has to say about me. So any passage you study, you can ask, what does this passage say about me? What do I have to learn here? The second question you ask, if it's something that you maybe never studied before, but you want to lead people, and you can ask the question is, what does this passage say about God? Okay, I understand what it says about me, but what does it say about God? It's really important that we get our concept of God from Scripture and nowhere else. Tons of things are wrestling to define God to you, including whatever you're comfortable with. Never dumb God down to what you're comfortable with or what you understand. People always always you know, say to me, well, tell me, you know, I just I can't imagine a God who dot dot. I'm like, stop. The Bible is so full of things you could not imagine that that's where you need to go to get your concept of God, because if you go by your imagination, you're going to end up really with a lowercase g, God. So you want to look at scripture and say, what does it say about God? A.W. Tozer said that whatever comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why is that? Because whatever you think of of God forms your behavior, forms your thoughts, forms your attitudes as you align with that. So look at scripture, ask first, what does it say about me? Second, what does it say about God? Now the third is a little more tricky because we have a problem here. What do we do with the gap? What do we do with the difference between what it says about us and what it says about God? There should be probably a tension there. Have you ever ridden the train and, In Great Britain, you know, you hear constantly over the intercom, mind the gap, mind the gap. What are they talking about? They're talking about the fact that the depot edge, the the concrete you stand on, there's a gap between that and the train. And you need to get on the train, but if you don't mind the gap, you can get hurt. And what we're saying here is mind the gap between what the Bible says and how it describes you and your problems or your issues and what God is trying to make us into. As we become more godly, not that we would become God, but that we would become godly So those are the questions we ask of this passage. What does it say about us? What does it say about God and what do we do with that gap in between? First of all what it says about us this passage says about us that we have a judgment problem (laughs) We've got a judgment problem. You say well, I don't think I do. Yeah, you do We judge people a little differently based on how they look, how they respond to us, what they think they can offer us. And we have a judgment problem. And we are not the only people on earth who've ever had one. In fact, people who are smarter and more godly than us have had judgment problems. If you go look at the Old Testament, Samuel and Saul get into a tiff. Okay, Saul is the king of Israel. Samuel is the prophet to the nation. And they get into this tiff because... Not Samuel, I'm sorry. I said that backwards. This is what happens when my computer goes down. Saul is the king. Samuel is the prophet. And Saul is setting up idols to himself. He's lying about it. And he's really dishonoring God. And Samuel and he just go head to head. And Samuel finally gets the okay from God to go appoint another king. So he goes looking to see who he's going to appoint. And he goes to the house of Jesse. And when he gets there, he sees the first son, Eliab. Now, Eliab, the Bible tells us, is probably, uh, looks like a pretty good leader. He's he's tall. I don't know why that makes you a good leader, but whatever. He's tall. (laughs) Some things I say so you don't have to. He's tall. He's good looking. He's strong. He's bold and and Samuel goes this must be the guy and the Lord says no no this isn't the guy in fact in first samuel 16:7 but the Lord said to Samuel do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him for the Lord sees not as man sees but the Lord looks at the man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. What Samuel could not have understood there was that sometime later, after he anoints David to be king, David's still a boy. There's a, there's a season there where he's anointed king, but he is not really walking in his office yet. But in that gap, David goes to meet the, the warriors where they're getting ready to uh, face Goliath. It's Eliab, the older brother, that Samuel thought should have been the leader, who actually mocks David. It's the one that Samuel thought, this must be the guy. I, I've got this figured out. I look at all these brothers. I take that one. God says, no, don't take that one because you don't know where this one's going. In fact, in the, one of the most crucial days to have faith, he'll actually mock the one that I've anointed. So he steers him to a different person. We all have problems about judgment because we judge on a different basis than God judges. James 2 is where he addresses this, where it talks about us and our judgment problem. James 2, 2 through 4. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, you sit here in a good place, well, you say to the poor man, you stand over here or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and became judges with evil thoughts. Now, just give you a little context here. In this day and age, people were greatly divided between religious and non-religious. In between those categories, they were divided between riches and poor. It was the closest thing we can imagine to India's caste system. And the way that you worked your way up the caste was by convincing other people you had more than it looked like you had. And so in this day and age, in order to go out in public, people would wear their very finest and in fact would, would wear things they couldn't afford. You could actually go for a special event. They would wear rings. Men in particular on their left hand would wear a ring on every finger. And they would probably behave like a newly engaged young woman. Oh, hello. How are you? You know, they want you to see the rings. There was a business in that day where you could go, if you had an important thing to go to, you could go and you could rent jewelry to wear to make it look like you were more prosperous than you were. What kind of world allows people to spend some money to make it look like they have a lot more money so that people respect them? (laughs) Wait, that's our world. And not only is it our world, we see people that we know are doing it, and we still make assumptions and judgments about them in their favor. And he's saying that you have people come into your service, and you know nothing about them other than the fact that somewhere they acquired these rings, and you credit that to them as importance, and you find them a nice place, and those that are poor, you press back to the edges of your group. Now, this would have said a lot in the day of James, because the early church had a lot of people who struggled with poverty. How do you know that? It's because regularly Jesus taught the poor. He had a very, very tender spot for the poor. Why? Why did he have a tender spot for the poor? Because the poor understood the idea of need. And they actually were more receptive to the gospel than those who were wealthy and guarded or so consumed with wealth that they would fake a lifestyle that they could not afford. And those that were poor had a natural tendency to gravitate towards the gospel because it gave them hope. That's why the church has often been alive in areas of poverty where it struggled in areas of wealth. It's not because it doesn't work for the wealthy. It's because the wealthy don't know if they need it or not. And the poor accept it. Now, what's interesting here is you can read this. And you can go, well, that's kind of endearing. You know, Jesus loves the poor. Yeah, of course. That's, we, we like that idea. That fits in with our Sunday school picture of him. And isn't that tender? Isn't that sweet? Anytime Jesus starts to look cute, he, brace yourself. Because he's going to come around and there's something else in scripture that adds on to that. It's got a little bite to it. So he loves the poor and he's guarding against our partiality with that. But then James goes on to tell us that our partiality is self-centered. That the reason we divide people into categories and we honor some and we don't honor others isn't so much about the people that we're judging, it's more about us. Now, like I said, poverty was a real issue in the New Testament church. If we read uh, James 15, 25, we see that Paul, who's on a missionary journey actually decides on his journey to gather funds to take back to the poor in Jerusalem. Only Paul, the missionary, takes an offering from the mission field back to his sending church because the poverty was a real deal there. But in our judging of people, we separate them. And in separating them, we do it. Why? For the same reason the New Testament church did it, because we see people people come into our midst who have things, and we instantly begin to think about how they can benefit us. We're not even thinking about the people who, as they walk in, oh, wow, I know that guy. I'm so glad he's here. Runs his own business, probably has a leadership gift, probably a role for him here. Or, oh, I know that person. Yeah, they're, you know, they're just struggling. What we're saying, it's coded, but what we're saying is one is more valuable to the body than the others. No. He says, don't do that. That's actually a a selfish, simplistic way of judging between people. We're going to fix this with my notes by the second service, I promise. Now it's Offering to open up a map to the church. <laughs> I'm at the church. <laughs> here we go. Thanks, I appreciate that. That was ten bucks well well spent here. So okay, so we understand what God says about us is that we we judge, and we we are partial, and that's and that's hard to hear because nobody likes. For, like, nobody likes to think of themselves as, as being partial to one person or the other. Because we've all felt the pain of that happening to us. You know? It's the most traumatic thing that happens day after day after day in every middle school in the world. It's called P.E. You know? And you remember, some of you just groaned. <laughs> like 50 years old. When I say middle school P.E., you twitch. Because... You know, whatever the game was, it meant you're getting hit in the face with a ball. It's just whatever it is. How did this happen? We're playing hockey and I still got hit in the face with a ball. But there's that awful thing where you pick sides, isn't it? And you stand there and your friend is the person picking sides and they're looking at you like they've never seen you in their life. They're just going up. And, and, so, and so we've all felt that pain. And because we hate that pain, we hate to think that we could impose it on others. Scripture says we do. So what does God say? out of this passage. We learn what it says about us. What does the passage say about God? First of all, it says that he singled out for honor those we have dishonored. James 2, 5, listen, my brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which has promised to those who love him. God builds a team out of those that never get picked. Those are the ones that he looks for, and he says, I choose to honor those. Why does he honor those kind of people? Psalm 12, 5 says, because the poor are plundered, and because the needy groan, I will now arise, and I will place him in the safety for which he longs. He looks for those that we would reject, and he draws them in, and that's who he builds a winning team out of. And we think we can judge from one to the next, and the Bible says, we're not really that good at that. And when people walk in the room, we can't tell what they contribute. The Bible says that God tells exactly what they bring to the table. And those are the people he wants to build the team from. The second thing we learn about God is that, this is really harsh. God equates our partiality with adultery and murder. That's how how serious he takes this. Every one of us rank sins. I know that we don't like to think that we do, but we really do. There's not so bad to really bad. And I realize some sins cause more pain than others, but God looks at partiality in that respect. James 2, 9 through 11. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit murder or commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Why does he talk about adultery and murder? You're like, Jesus, you escalated this really fast. How did we go from being rude to somebody to adultery and murder? Like, that's a jump too far. I can't do that. Because adultery and murder deny position and personhood okay? Adultery denies the position of someone. It says, I want you for my physical needs, but I wouldn't marry you. And it denies their, their existence. Murder denies a life that God says is worth living. And what feels like adultery and murder are at a level up here, if you've ever been judged unfairly and rejected, you realize that pain feels like your personhood is being denied. Your existence is being denied. How many of you remember the '80s and '90s the books um, by Frank Peretti? his present darkness some of you? He was writing these, these uh, uh, spiritual warfare thriller novels that where there was nobody who was writing anything like this from a Christian perspective at that time. And you go back and they're a little dated, but in the day, man, it's, they were they were gripping. And uh, he's a very well known writer. He he does a lot of radio. He's got this phenomenal voice, but he grew up with a condition that caused great disfigurement on his face and he had a number of surgeries on his face over and over and over again and in that he was very rejected by anyone he went to school with he was constantly judged constantly hurt like this and he says this in a book he writes about the experience if you've ever been there you've never forgotten how it feels it's being undersized or oversized or less than beautiful It's knowing you are vulnerable and that someone is ready to take advantage of your weakness. It's the fraternity you never wanted to join, the fellowship of the wounded spirit. And if you've ever been there, you understand the correlation between adultery and murder. It's like denying you exist. He says in another passage that he got used to children running up to him and asking the question, what's wrong with you before they asked what your name was? And that partiality of judging between people at first glance denies them the very personhood that God wants to give them. So here's something that the stakes are so high. We are are on the verge of denying people their own personhood, and we learned earlier in this passage, not only are we doing it, we're bad at it. Not, Not only is it dangerous, we're awful. Our judgment is bad. So what do we do? with this gap what do we do with this idea that we judge and we're bad at it and that god builds a team out of those that are broken and and how do we how do we get together on those two things first of all we don't make excuses we make amends we don't just yeah i shouldn't have done that we actually make it right James 2, 8 says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. He said, there is a way to do well at this. The way to do well is to regard others like you would want to be regarded. That is so simplistic. Some I mean, of you're like, can, can you give me a nine point plan for that? No. If you think about it a little bit, you probably know what it means. Regard your others like you would like to be regarded. And in doing that, you don't just make excuses for your bad judgment or my bad judgment we make amends and we begin to heal that riff with people who we've hurt there you're not supposed to have favorite prophets i would guess but i do and uh, i have a couple favorites but uh, one of my favorites is amos i like amos because amos was a farm boy who didn't really want to be a prophet he, was, he would repeatedly, in, I don't know, was it eight chapters in Amos, says it over and over again, I'm a farmer. I didn't want to really want this job. He's just very, he's an amateur, okay? And innovation is driven by amateurs, not professionals. And so I, I love amateurs, and I love this amateur prophet who repeatedly tells the people he's prophesying to, you know, I'm not very good at this, I'm a farmer, but, and then he just drops the word of the Lord. But he says something in Amos 5 that is regularly taken out of context and misinterpreted. Amos 5, take away from me the noise of your songs, to, let the melody of your, to, to the melody of your harps I will not listen. He's speaking as the voice of the Lord here. Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We read that, and people interpret that as, yes, one day from the Lord, justice will roll down like water. That's not what that's about. That's the Lord speaking to us, saying, you make sure that justice rolls down. You do the part to make it right. If justice is going to happen on the earth before the return of the Lord, if there's going to be any justice, it's going to be because we do what is right and just. And he's putting the onus of not just... making excuses, but making amends for wrongs and for judging people on those that have made the judgment. If justice is going to happen in our nation before the return of the Lord, it's going to be because we worked for it. Thanks for listening to this episode of our 14-part series on the book of James. If you're in the Kansas City area, we would love to meet you. Check us out at thebridgekc.church.